Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. On today's show, I'm confident you'll enjoy getting to know a relatively new writer who, in my opinion, is going to be one of those authors you'll read for years to come. If you enjoy John le Carre, you'll also enjoy David McCloskey and his latest book, Damascus Station. Uh, personally, I think this book has it all. Intrigue, murder, espionage, and even romance. David has a hit on his hands, as you'll hear inside the show. And he appears as excited and humble as a brand new author, which he is. However, you'd never know it by the depth of this thriller. Okay, folks, it's time to get into the Thriller Zone. Good to see you, sir. I'm excited to be with you. Man, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to jump out of the gate by flashing this beautiful book. Um, and I'm gonna get, we're going we're gonna to dive deep. I got up early five o'clock thinking about it, and um, I don't know. If that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm gonna we'll, we'll go with good thing for now. Selfishly, that's good for me, but you know, maybe bad for your sleep or your social obligations. I don't know. I've been doing this a long time. I'm I'm very transparent about what I think and what I feel. If I don't like something, I will probably tell you that it's. Uh, I'll figure out a nice way to make it sound <laughs> like it's pretty good. Right. Right. Because you are on the show and I don't want you to make, you know, think you're, I'm not trying to suck up. However, I will probably hint somewhere in there that, uh, you know, I enjoyed it or something like that. Right. But right. when I love something, I get kind of crazy about it. <laughs> and this is one of those books. And I want to save some of that crazy talk for later, but it is a riveting thriller. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's always not, good to know when someone's like losing sleep or waking up early. That's you no know, books in your head that way. That's how I get with books too. So I probably am reading. I'd swing the camera around, but I won't bore <laughs> you with all that. But I have a, I have two stacks to my right. I've got another stack to my left. On the table behind me, I have another stack. And I do sincerely try to read, read every book that I talk about on this show. And with the growing popularity of the show, it is eating into... <laughs> My personal life, <laughs> my own writing time, yeah, etc. And I am going to have to figure out a way to get around that because I just cannot read all the books. <laughs> However, for whatever reason, this came across my desk, and I love the cover, and I'm a sucker for a great cover because I'm a closet yeah. uh, artist. And then, oh, I don't want to blow all my great lead up things, but no, I'm, yeah, you got to save, you got to yeah. save some of the content. Yeah, we're exactly. gonna we're gonna talk about the quotes. But anyway, let's start here. Let's start here. By the way, what, ladies and gentlemen, this is David McCloskey, author of Damascus Station, in case you haven't figured that out so far. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I have so many things to talk about, not the least of which is we'll just start with wow and we'll go from there. But let's start with you. You live in Dallas, right? That's right. That's right. Live in Dallas, been here for about seven years. Uh, we are, you know, we're recording this in October. So thankfully, we are out of the season where it's above 100 degrees regularly. We've got some beautiful fall weather rolling in. So it's, uh, we, we love Texas. We're not native Texans. We try to convince people otherwise, but, you know, we fail. Where are you from originally? <laughs> Minneapolis, originally. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then a uh, number of years um, in Virginia, obviously with the uh, with the CIA, sometime in the Middle East, too. But uh, 
we've been in Dallas now for for a long time, and we love it here. Well, the Thriller Zone loves us some Texans because you're about the sixth or seventh Texan I've had on the show off the top of my head okay. in the last yeah. month yeah. and a half. Okay. A, a lot of good things happening there. Um, Meg Gardner, uh, Austin. Yeah. Susie Spencer. Okay, yep. Uh, Joe Rogan. Yeah. A competitor. Um, and so many more, but... I, uh, oh, oh, my very first guest, very first that started the show was May Cobb. Okay. Yeah. Author of the Hunting Wives. There you go. Yeah. Some te Texas has got some good, uh, got some good stuff going down here. You know, uh, a lot of writers, a lot of material, a lot of crazy people too. So that's even more material. So, you know, you got, you got it all really. <laughs> and speaking of crazy people, I hear Elon Musk is coming your way. Yeah, exactly. We've got, uh, we do have, now you're in, are you in San Diego? San Diego, right? actually okay. North County, just North Encinitas. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've got, I mean, we really do have a lot of like Californians that have moved less to, less to Dallas. I'd say more to Austin. Yeah. Uh, which I think Elon is, you know, uh, fitting mm -hmm. right in there, but yeah, I, we've got, we got a lot of people that have uh, been making the pilgrimage to Texas here sometimes permanently over the past few years. So it's fun. I think it's part, well, first of all, uh, our state and I, I've always, I've, this is my third tour of duty in California. I like to call it. I'm from the South, so I, I can say that. Okay. okay. Um, my third to tour of duty, first two time, first time radio, second time movies and television, third time with my wife as a writer. Okay. And it is a, uh, it's got, a, it's its own ballywick. It's full of uh, high taxes, massive crowds, fires earthquakes and the pestilence is on the way i'm sure <laughs> but yeah a lot of people moving to austin and uh, there's a lot of crazy cool kooky energy i think that's why the californians are heading there particularly yeah for sure for sure and it's uh so we're in we're in dallas which is the slightly less intriguing uh metropolitan area in texas but uh we we really enjoy it it's full of good people and um you know it's one of those places we moved you know from dc where you kind of I think the first time we came down here, we found a parking spot at a grocery store, which was an interesting experience because, you know, it's pretty hard to find parking in most spots of the district. And we just kind of want, I mean, it's a big place called Central Market. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, yeah. Huge, massive grocery store. We just kind of wandered around for like two hours. Like we had, you know, uh, come out of some kind of subterranean bunker and we hadn't seen food in like, you know, 10 years because uh, there's just so much massive, big selection. Um, but, uh, you know, cost, the, the quality of life here is, uh, is is high um it's 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 a fun place to live yeah um dallas fort worth yeah not as humid as uh houston my brother used to live in houston that, no, that's no. a sticky pot isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah my uh my wife made the move to texas contingent on not moving to houston so we uh we settled on dallas the 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 humidity down there is pretty rough and it's a bit more of a you know at least has been a bit more of an oil town so yeah. i was doing consulting work for a number of years and that was something i wanted to be close to but not necessarily deep in i guess um so we ended up here and to do some backwards uh you were consulted at mckinsey and company is that what what exactly is mckinsey before we move on to the real juicy stuff yeah yeah it's a um it's a management consulting firm so we do i mean really uh, traditionally we have done a lot of kind of strategy work with large large companies of all kinds, all industries, you know, now McKinsey does a lot of different types of things. So we might do work to help companies improve, you know, manufacturing operations or think about their, 
warehouse footprint or things like that. I mean, just a wide variety of business problems that, you know, the firm helps different companies solve and think through. Cool. Not nearly as cool as being a CIA (laughs) analyst, right? I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, they each have their own interesting, uh, uh, you know, tidbits. Um, I, I will say that just from a pure kind of intellectual standpoint, and I think a lot of my McKinsey colleagues would disagree with, I always enjoyed thinking about, you know, intelligence, foreign policy, other kinds, of, that, that was probably more intellectually interesting to me than solving problems for businesses. But uh, I could probably trot out a whole group of McKinsey consultants who would vehemently disagree with me there. But my yeah. own, uh, you, you're right. My, my view would be the agency work was a bit more interesting than uh than the consulting work. And let's dig into that because uh, the letters alone conjure up all kinds of intrigue and mystery and excitement. And I want to know just right out of the gate, what is it like working for the CIA? And I know that you, I think I have a pretty good idea that you didn't carry a gun. So an analyst (laughs) is a little bit different than some of the boots on ground. And I'm not trying to diminish or minimize that. No, 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 for sure. Very, um, you know, the agency uh, is a very interesting place to work. I think of it as a kind of um, uh, the way I would frame it is it's a very bipolar organization at, at its highest level. The the bureaucracy and the mundaneness and the quirks are a lot quirkier than most other big organizations because it's a big place. You know, sure. so it's got some commonalities just from an organizational standpoint with a big fortune 500 company. So you got all that, but it's also weirder because it's a big secretive, you know, government institution. Um, and then the exceptional nature of the mission that the CIA does also means that uh, the highs are much higher in a way. So the work is actually far more exceptional than that of any, I would argue almost any other company on the, you know, or institution on the face of the planet. Wow. And so on every day, you're kind of, whether you're an analyst or you're a case officer or you're a support officer or, or involved in tech in some way, um, I think you're dealing with that kind of bipolar nature uh, pretty regularly. You know, and I've got a quote in the book where my main protagonist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is one of my notes. I, I keep one of these handy nearby because may I interrupt you and say no, this? No, please. Yeah, no, yeah. please. Go ahead. And I wrote, there's a line third of the way in that caught my eye. I wonder how much of it is true. And I want to read it first. And that is, it's the bipolar nature. Because when you said that, I'm like, yeah. he's going to quote that. Bipolar nature of the agency never ceases to amaze. CIA had the ability to find and kill a person in the remote Hindu Kush. And on the other hand, he couldn't find a working stapler at Langley. <laughs> yeah, I had some fun with that. Um, I mean, I think... You know, the, the office supply outages were not common, but, you know, I, I distinctly remember them occurring and being very frustrated and thinking that thought when I was there of like, I know all kinds of things that we're doing around the world right now that are extremely impressive. And then if I could tell anyone, you know, they would be like, wow, that is incredible. And then you know, you're sort of rifling through a cabinet. And you're like, there's no stapler. There's no, like, where is it? I couldn't get, you know, I got to wander down the hall. And this was the case also, um, not just in headquarters, but also in some, in some of the field stations. So that nature, I think is, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a kind of a misunderstood uh, aspect of the, of the agency to a lot of outsiders who tend to look at it as either like, you know, sort of bungling or maybe nefarious and incompetent on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, 
superhero spies running around killing people. And the reality of, of it is, you know, it's, it's, it's really neither of those, of those things. It's uh, it's sort of this, you know, creature that is, is very quirky and weird on the one hand and sort of mundane. And then on the other hand is doing some really, really amazing stuff. So to borrow a phrase I use in another example, it's kind of the uh, quirky gray in between. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. You know, it's a, uh, it's a place that's pretty by its very nature, severely misunderstood by, by a lot of the outside world. And I think at least one of the things I was trying to do in the book was to shed some light on, on its workings, um, you know, insofar as that would be responsible. Um, and I also wanted to make it entertaining too. So there are some pieces in there that are you know fictionalized and I had some fun with, I, I wanted to kind of bring that to life. Cause I, you know, I, I just think the, the public discourse about the place can get pretty misunderstood pretty quickly. And so bringing it to life through a novel was a fun way to kind of bring some of that truth out. Sure. And I think that could be said of both the FBI yeah, and, sure. uh, and, and NSA, any of the alphabet groups, right? And right. they're all glamorized because it makes for great television and films. Right. right. Um, yeah, we're going to keep drilling down on that. I do want to know, though, because I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately curious. Like when I had... Um, Todd Scott on the show, we're talking about being okay, a DEA yeah. agent. And I'm like, dude, what the hell is that like? <laughs> and uh, we had some great stories on on channel. And then we had a few more off channel that needed to stay there. But um, it's harrowing. I want to know what a day in the life was like for you as a CIA, a CIA analyst. And, you know, and, and had you always want to work for the CIA? Was this something you grew up going, you know, that's what I want to be when I grow up? Yeah, yeah. So... I'll take that uh, second question first. I, I never really thought much about the, I mean, I was interested in foreign policy and then in international relations. That's what I studied in school. Um, I think Hopkins. there was a, at, at Johns Hopkins and then at, even at undergrad. So I, I was really, I kind of knew I wanted uh, to understand how the world worked. I wanted to travel. I wanted something that had a global perspective. That was interesting to me. Um, you know, it wasn't until actually that, the CIA came to recruit on campus that I thought, hey, you know, that seems like it's a perfect kind of fit. Right. Um, and also it just does have, especially as a, I took my first polygraph as a 19 year old. Um, For what reason? So they got me, they got me fairly young. Uh, and um, you know, like when you're, when you're 19 and you're kind of listening, your whole lens is, the movies and Hollywood and all this kind of crazy stuff. And you just, I, I honestly think the underwriting, you know, thought at that point is kind of like, this is really cool. And so I, you know, recruiter comes and I think I'll just, I'll apply and we'll see what happens. Um, and, uh, and I got in, so I, you know, I was extremely excited to do it and, and jump in as a, you know, very young person into this job. Um, <clears throat> The day in the life is very different if you were a analyst or your case officer. Um, sure. I'll give you I'll give you mine, and you know we can certainly talk about the case officer side of it too. So an analyst, um, you know, I actually think it's probably there's definitely some similarities to uh, being a reporter. You are working on on a story. Mm -hmm. right? you're, you're looking at a, a subject. So in this case, let's say it's Syria. Um, you want to help your readers understand what's going on there. Uh, why is it happening? What does it mean for them? And in this case, instead of the readers being the general public or whatnot, it's the president, 
senior policymakers, you know, Congress, and uh, you know, the, the whole kind of executive branch that are receiving, you know, the, the products that you're producing. And so you're trying to generate understanding of any particular intelligence question you're looking at. So one that uh, I spent a lot of time looking at early on was when the unrest began in Syria, okay, what, what's going to happen, right? That's the $64,000 question. Of course, it's impossible to answer, but your sort of, your mission as a, an analyst in this, uh, you know, example is help to bound what's possible. What are the different scenarios? What might drive them? What does it mean for the U.S.? And you're using, and this is the interesting part of being an agency analyst is that uh, unlike a journalist, most of the time, unlike someone who's working at a think tank or an academic who's writing reports, you're, you're dealing with inf- with a specific, a uh, couple specific kinds of information that most people don't have access to, right? So you're, uh, you're using intelligence reports that have been delivered by agents that the CIA is running overseas who have stolen that information from their governments and are providing it to you. Or you're listening to intercepted phone communications, or you're looking at satellite images. And all of those things are um, you know, used in complement with all the other information that other people have to then answer whatever that intelligence question might be. To so, build the framework of to right. reporting to the, got it. Right, exactly. So most of the work that I was doing whether it was at Langley or whether it was, you know, whether I was actually in a station overseas was to provide context and understanding for people who are trying to, you know, get in the minds and, and hearts of, um, you know, the Syrian president or, you know, the Iranians or, or this or that terrorist group to understand what's coming next so that we can, you know, help policymakers understand what they need to do to advance U.S. interests, to stop a terrorist attack, you know, these kinds of things. So that's kind of what an, I mean. An analyst is really trying to speak truth to uh, to policymakers about what's going to happen and what they might be able to do to better protect Americans or better advance American interests. I think your word of journalist is a really great uh, nail upon which to hang the meaning because uh, it, it instantly clicked. Having been a journalist myself, is so as you were uh, collecting the collateral, would this would also be when you were providing uh, writing for the president's daily brief, correct? Yeah, With, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So as you've worked in field stations in the Middle East and uh, conducted a rotation in the counterterrorism center focused on the jihad in uh, Syria and Iraq, the two-part question, I'm taking this from some of your information, what's actually working a rotation? And can you describe for my listeners what that's like? Because you were in it. You were not yeah. just observing from some office someplace. You were actually in the thick of it. I mean, in this case, a uh, at the time I was working on Syria and, and Lebanon. Okay. Um, I did a like, I don't know exactly where I was, six months maybe, where I, I was still sort of home-based back on that Syria-Lebanon stuff, but I was working for that period of time on a rotational capacity on dealing with um, counterterrorism, kind of targeting and analysis specific to what was then going on in Iraq, right? So um, I don't have to get too much into it, but basically at the, basically the middle of the Iraq war, there started to be these jihadis that would fly into Damascus. They would go in these smuggling lines and, and they would go through Syria into Iraq and then they would become suicide bombers in Iraq. They would target US troops, they would target civilians. 
And so we spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, well, trying to stop them from doing that and right. finding out how we might be able to, to find them along the way. So I was involved in that. Wow. Uh, you had to have feared for your life somewhere along the line. I mean, you weren't, this was not a nine to five uh, going through the beltway, uh, having a nice cush job with your uh, <laughs> coffee from Starbucks and uh, loosening the tie at the desk and, uh, you know, padding around in your flip flops. I mean, as, as much as I want to, I want to say that there were times where I did, I, I, I don't actually think that there were, I, okay. I, I never felt, um, and let me be very clear. There are CIA officers who are putting their, you know, they're, they're putting their, their ass on the line all the time. Right. And right. there's a memorial wall at Langley where we have stars to commemorate those, you know, the people who have died in the line of duty. Um, I wasn't one of those CIA officers. Um, I was doing most of my work from inside embassies or from Langley. Um, you know, I, I was not, uh, I was not a sort of the, the people that, kind of think of when we're talking about that kind of targeting work are, are in um, the special activities center, which is kind of almost the CIA's paramilitary organization where you have people who are much more like, you know, they're actually pulling the trigger and, and, and on the ground kind of kicking indoors, that type of thing. Which is where we pick up your book. <laughs> a little bit exactly there are so many things uh that i enjoyed about this thriller i i loved how you uh infused humanity in mm -hmm. several of the darker characters what i mean by that is you just didn't make them uh, cardboard cutouts of bad guys most of them anyway i mean they were not just your oh there's there's the bad guy he's painted that way and so there's there's humanity. So and usually the way you can paint the humanity, in my opinion, is you show the family and you did that with the adversary. And that was wonderful. It made me think of a few movies that I'd seen that I enjoyed. And I'm like, I love the fact that you did that so that they weren't just that's all black and that's all white. And here we come right. together and in, in the middle. Right. And for fear of sounding trite or cliche or, you know, trying to blow smoke up your skirt. I hope you're not wearing one as I've done. <laughs> Uh, as I try not to ever do, but I do want to say that uh, all the way through the book, I and I like I said, I read a lot. I said, there's no way this is David's first book. There's just no way. So there's the biggest compliment I'm going to give you today. Well, I appreciate that very much. Um, I, I guess there's a world where you could say it's my second because I wrote like a hundred thousand words seven years ago that uh, I ended up, you know, putting aside for a long time when I did the consulting job and then came back to it when I had some time a few years ago, which is when I started writing this book. And I thought, oh man, you know, I'll just be able to dust that off and kind of make it a little bit better and maybe it'll be ready to go. And I threw it all away. I was, I reread it again and I'm like, this is terrible. This was wow. so bad. Um, and it really was like, it was, uh, it was written at a time when I was really coming out of the agency, coming out of working on the Syrian war and was really processing a lot of that. <laughs> and, and it was just, uh, you know, completely unsaleable uh and and not at all what i wanted to write so i kind of took a little bit of that and some characters and just threw it away and started over again so there is a sort of uh hundred thousand word carcass somewhere <laughs> on my on my computer um that uh that exists from a prior writing effort but this is the i guess this would be the first attempt to really like 
combine something that I enjoy writing with something that hopefully other people enjoy reading, which always, you know, don't always go together. Um, True. But yeah, so first and book with an asterisk, I guess you could say. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Go find the asterisk and go to the bottom of the page. Um, and by the way, having written a couple of books, uh, all self-published, I, I know what it's like to uh, kill a hundred thousand word baby. And that is, that is no easy feat. <laughs> Brutal. It's really hard. But it's funny. I so I was up this morning, five o'clock, reading the book, finishing it, and I was I literally I, I I promise on a stack of your books that I'm looking at the clock, and I, I started at five o five, and I'm counting down. I had to allow myself about an hour to get you know my wig hat on and so forth, and I knew I had so much time, and I'm making notes and I'm reading, and that when you roll up toward the conclusion, it is friggin' page turning and. You know, you always hear that and you're like, yeah, page turn or whatever. But I'm like, I'm ripping through the pages. But I'm making notes. And when I get up uh, to take a shower and get ready, my wife passes me in the hall. She goes, so? So what would you think? I said, well, babe, seriously. And she knows when I say this. I go, seriously? This book has it all. She goes, really? Why? I'm like, well, I mean, it's action. It's secrets. It's intrigue. It's, it's romance. It's deception. It's heroes, broken and otherwise. I mean, it's got it all. She's like, oh. Appreciate that. I might have to read it. I'm like, get in line, girl. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe, maybe this becomes the second best compliment because as I was reading it, I was I was going back to some of the movies that we sit and watch all the time, Tammy and I, over and over. And it's like, look out, John Le Carre, because this is you know this is that Tinker Soldier guy story, Tinker Toy Soldier, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Thank you. I knew I was yeah. going to f that up. No, and, and and your your comment about the the villains uh, and, and trying to bring some humanity to the family. I mean, when I when I was writing that scene and kind of thinking about how to introduce that character, I I, I thought you know one of the scenes that I love the most in The Godfather is when you meet him at the wedding, right? You know, at uh, at Sonny's wedding, I think, right? And yeah. uh, you're like, it's hard for you to hold in your mind at the same time that this guy is doing, you know, he's, he's sort of perpetrating these pretty monstrous things. He oversees this pretty callous, you know, corrupt organization. And then at the same time, he's this, you know, family guy. And like, it's, but, but that's just, to me, that was kind of like, this is, this is humanity. This is what people are like. This is, this is how, you know, this is how the world works. And so I, I really did want, I think the book has like, it definitely has good guys and bad guys to it, but I didn't, I think you put it exactly, you nailed it, right? I didn't want there to be this proliferation of sort of cartoonish villains where you're like, it's like a wind up like demonic bad guy who's just, right. you know, all manner of evil and there's nothing sort of even sympathetic or human about him. I just wasn't, I kind of actually wasn't as a writer interested in spending a whole lot of time with a character like that as I wrote them out. Um yeah, and 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 you you draped him in this great humanity, like I said. And the the nice thing is, is you 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 peeled him away slowly. You didn't just come out of the gate and go, oh, he's bad. Oh, by the way, he's also good. You peeled it away so that you allowed us as the reader to go. There's more to this guy than we thought, and that's yeah. what I love about good writers is they they let me make the discovery. They don't insult my intelligence to remind something I do all the time. Insult the intelligence of the reader. Go, oh, by the way, I told you this thing down here. Don't forget that. Yeah, it, it was a perfect balance and the juxtaposition. I think that's the word I kept looking for. The juxtaposition was good. But 
So your CIA case officer and lead character, Sam Joseph, love this guy. He's interesting because you've, again, I'm going to use this phrase, you've draped him in this humanity, enough mystery that um, he isn't a carbon copy of a TV character. Frankly, I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about him. I don't know him uh, super deep and super wide. And that's okay because it, uh, it makes me want more. So where'd you come up with this guy? He's, he's pretty much a composite of a number of case officers that I knew mixed in with a little bit of, so he's not me very, very explicitly. I actually think if I had any alter ego in this book, it was weirdly enough, the Damascus chief of station, Artemis Proctor, the really foul mouth kind of insane person. Like uh -huh. that's, that's, that was more, as I wrote, I was like, Oh, she's kind of my spirit animal. And I don't know what it says about me that a five foot one, uh, curly haired, uh, woman is is my alter ego but there you go um you said it i'm i've got it on record <laughs> my spirit animal my spirit animal is yeah. a she she uh she's a she was a fun one i feel I like i loved she, reading her man she's one of those characters that just you, you start writing a scene with her and she'll just do something totally different but you know the same character i, I really did want i wanted a protagonist that was not a typical spy thriller protagonist and i say that with love for the genre and all different types of books in the genre you know that that authenticity is not the aim of many spy thrillers and that's fine i love i love that stuff and, and really enjoy it but i thought that it would be interesting for me and again i wanted to write you know characters that i enjoyed spending time with and so i sure, found sure. that this guy like I, was, I, I looked at the work of a cia case officer and i thought this is really interesting and there's there's a lot of drama here there's a lot of drama in the the process there's a lot of drama and entry there's a lot of drama in the human relationships that they develop and this kind of juxtaposition of like manipulation but also uh intimacy mm -hmm, <laughs> that mm -hmm. i i found really uh, intriguing and so i i picked i wanted him to be to be that and i thought that you know i had a number of case officers who i spent time with at the agency and then i talked with as i was putting the book together that i sort of fused together a composite of them in my mind and injected them into sam's character i also i'm from minnesota so I, I wanted him to be from minnesota selfishly so he's got that bit of midwestern you know outside of he didn't go to an ivy you know he, he grew up in a rural minnesota community and ended up at the agency sort of in a uh you know unlikely through an unlikely path which i which i appreciated i, I honestly found that most of the characters i enjoyed were I just I started thinking about kind of real people. And as I worked on the characters over time, they kind of fused together into this, you know, person on the page that felt just as real as the composites they came from. And I think you nailed it with uh, a guy off the beaten path. And I don't know yeah. why I'm attracted to that, I suppose, because part of it is I'm, I always root for the underdog. I like guys that come from a place of their own personal integrity and they just, you know, wake up one day maybe and they say, you know what, I'm tired of this bullshit and I want to go make a difference and do something good. And they don't do it because, because my father did it and his father did it and his father did it. And that's what, you know, right. really, I guess that's why I was so drawn to Sam Joseph. And, and again, the fact that he had so much mystery yet uh, in him and a, a side note because i just was finishing it this morning when he got and none of this is spoiling and if i if i do you can raise your hand and i'll cut this out um <laughs> he's getting tortured 
And it's the way he compart he mentally compartmentalizes yeah. what he has to hold aside so that he doesn't forfeit the security of someone else. And I thought that really took me out of the story in a good way because I mm. processed the the wherewithals you would have to do to be able to do that. And I thought, holy wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, I uh I had, that was one of those scenes, and you know, I'll, I'll just try to think about how to describe this without giving anything away. I think I started writing the book and I thought I'll have an outline and that'll be fairly helpful and I'll be able to kind of tick through it step by step. And he uh, <laughs> quickly realized like about day three, the whole outlines exploded. And, you know, I, I was going back to uh, back to basics almost every day. But that scene was one that I knew I wanted to get to uh, somehow. And I felt like it was a it was the perfect way because there's been so much build and, and deception and intrigue along the way for our characters that I wanted there to be a scene that kind of lays bare a lot of that. And that brings, uh, brings you into their heads at this moment that um, they're not deceiving you. And, and frankly, they're not, you know, for the most part, deceiving deceiving others like i wanted all the emotion kind of laid bare in one one big climactic scene um so i'm happy with the way i still remember writing that one and kind of coming home that day and thinking man you know i i've been gearing up for this for like five months and six months of writing and it felt like a remarkable release to even write that um to write that scene it was viscerally palpable to use two really big bigger than dime store <laughs> words but and in my own transparency here, because I, I, you know, a struggling starting writer, and I, I, as I was reading this, I truthfully thought, man, I need to just go do something else because if it's guys like that out there writing books like this, I don't know that I can compete. I'm glad you say that because I feel that way whenever, I mean, I feel like that has to be a common feeling for writers. Cause I'll tell you, like, I mean, I read, I must read a book a week where I kind of look at that. And I'm like, I can't do that. You know, there's no way I could do that. Um, so I, you understand I, that I'm not trying to be. No, know, no, no, for sure. I mean, I feel, I feel that way every week. I think I explained to my wife once when I started, started the writing process, it was like every day is kind of a three-legged stool of fear, uh, joy, and self-loathing. And it's just a matter of what what's the mixture going to be today because i'm going to get all three of those emotions you know at some point that is such a great thing and, and and i don't know that a lot of people listen there are a lot of people doing a lot more dangerous a lot more heroic a lot more admirable things than us sitting there writing stories i get that and sure. i applaud them and i salute them and i thank them at every opportunity but it is not an easy job what we do to make it seem as effortless as you did I remember I had Meg Gardner on early in the program. She's one of my heroes. I just love Meg Gardner's right. books. Mm -hmm. And she has a way of telling a story and she has a way of turning a phrase. And I, I remember mentioning this in the episode. And I said, you know, the way you turn a phrase is amazing. And you know, what she said in a very self-effacing way, that's what rewrites are for. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I never thought about it this way. And, and, and as I was reading your book, my mind flashed back to that. And here's what I came up with. And you do this so well. And I'm starting to really understand more of the craft by reading your work. Is that you'll write the story. So the meat and the bones are all there, right? Mm -hmm. But then you go back and you put a, 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 a sport coat around it with only a phrase. <laughs> 
and then a little bit later you add a tie. And I'm not, I don't know where I, why I came up with that metaphor. The, the metaphor being you can lay in a lot of those little tiny tertiary levels that, that create, that add so much color and complexity and, and richness to it without belaboring it by the sun was red and it was beautiful like the, you know, you just cut to the chase with these tiny little droplets. And it made me think of this in case it's a long way around the bend is the fact that it's through the rewriting that the magic really helps and really makes it explode. I think. For sure. No, I, um, I have, I'm trying to, I don't even really know how many drafts I did, but it was a lot. And even more, I mean, I, draft is probably the wrong word. It was like just pa passes through this stuff so many times to try to figure out, you know, I mean, honestly, to try to figure out who uh, more sort of finally who the characters are sure. uh, to really make sure that it all holds together from a character or plot standpoint, you know, to add little details that that make the scenes grittier for the reader. Um, I heard I can't take credit for this analogy, but I, I heard it somewhere and it's kind of stuck with me, which is that first kind of pass or draft is like the cooking equivalent of just putting the ingredients on the counter mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're like i'm gonna have you know italian food and i've okay. got 15 ingredients on the counter but it's not a meal like it's just this splotch of stuff spread out on the counter and like all those rewrites are what actually creates the meal that's satisfying um because my i mean my first my the first draft you know the second draft third draft like they suck i mean they're not very good you know and and they don't hang together and they have to like you do i mean i think meg's right i mean you have to sort of need this stuff a lot to get to the finished product which is it's both the wonderful thing and the weird thing is that like someone can consume it in you know 10 hours this thing that took a year and then they're done you know um right but uh it, it's it's kind of a wild wild uh alchemy to get to the final thing and it is that is such a uh that is such a mixed bag of emotions and you just nailed it perfectly because you know i think about this you how long did you spend ballpark me how long you spent writing this book um i'm gonna say it, it was nine months okay so nine months and by the time you did edits and la 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 in the book cover it's a, it's easily a year so your average yeah, book yeah. is a, okay so you think about this a year it took of your life to craft this and i devoured it in um I started it yesterday and I finished it this morning. Okay. <laughs> part of that was wanted to make sure I was prepared, but all, part of it was it just, I mean, I had the football game on. I'm like, yeah, honey, that's great. Yeah. Oh, score. Great. You know, um, so just point, what you want as a, as a writer, right? You want that reaction tearing through it. Dude, exactly. dude it, it, you, you couldn't ask for anything more. Right. Um, so anyway, applause. So we spent some time on t Sam Joseph, love it. But how about the counterpart and the fact that you, we're gonna get to the romance, but so Syrian palace official, Miriam Haddad, remarkable character, beauty, brains, and the balls, if you will, to back it up with sure. Krav Maga. Okay, yeah. so A, gorgeous, can't wait to meet her and hear what she's gonna do. B, Krav Maga, of, of all the things, for those who don't know that, it's a, it's a military self-defense uh, fighting method that combines Make sure I get this right. It's boxing, uh, wrestling, judo, karate. For sure. Probably some hair pulling in there too. Essentially just like Israeli street, you know, Israeli uh, military sort of street combat. And they took right. pieces of all these different types of martial arts and 
put it together and uh, Israeli MMA. Right. Yeah. Something like that. Got yeah. it. So tell me about her, that amalgamation. Yeah. I was, uh, so, I mean, I tell my story through a number of different points of view uh, on, on the Syrian side. And this is one of the things I was really keen to do when I was writing was like, Syria is a very complex place. The war is very complex. Um, how do I show that complexity through my characters without it feeling like I'm cramming something down your throat, you know? Right. And with her, I wanted somebody who was vested in the system, uh, who has, you know, this kind of strong family connection to the government and into society and in business, um, but who for very personal reasons um, starts to starts to despise it. Um, and that is very, that was a very common uh, emotion and feeling during the war, even for those who were part of the government was to, to have, you know, members of the extended family mistreated and how do you respond to that when you're working for the government? And sure. so, you know, she kind of came out of that synthesis of experiences that I had seen in the Syrian war. Um, <clears throat> you know, as her character developed, cause it didn't start, her and Sam in this relationship, it, it wasn't really the spine of the novel when I started, but what I realized was, um, you know, that relationship between case officer and, and agent uh, is so intimate. And obviously they were very attracted and are very attracted to each other that there was, there was just some chemistry there between the characters that almost took on a life of its own. And, and with her in particular, and I actually think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, she's the protagonist of the book, uh, mm -hmm. if I had to pick one, um, is because she, and, and I think she and Sam actually have this conversation at one point where she's the one really putting more on the line. You know, he he does some things at the end of the book that I think distinguish him and, and where he sort of stands up for her in a way that's surprising and unexpected. But yes, um, she's really the one taking all the risk. and uh, And I thought that was really interesting and so as i wrote her character just started to kind of take on more of a life of its own and, and she had a lot more agency by the time i finished writing when i initially started i, I think in my mind the book started as sam's story and it kind of ended as hers in a lot of ways you took my next note i was going to say it felt like it started with sam and ended with her but that, that's <laughs> and that's a great place to take a short break we are with david mccloskey and we're talking about damascus station and we'll be back on the thriller zone right after this I'm David McCloskey, the author of Damascus Station, and you are listening to the very fun and funky uh, Thriller Zone podcast with David Temple. <laughs> that's a first. I've never been called fun and funky, and I'll take it, bitch. There you go. I think that might, that's probably a Texas thing coming out there, even though I'm from Minneapolis. It's just sort of, you know, it's flowing through me. Yeah. You, I feel that Texas side of you, boy. You hang around there long enough, you're going to be eating ribs and drinking beer all the time. 
And welcome back to the Thriller Zone. I'm David Temple with David McCloskey. We're talking about Damascus Station, and this is a page turner of a book. Welcome back. Thanks, David. Yes. As we said before the break, um, we got two great characters, a protagonist that starts out strong protagonist, and then another protagonist who kind of steals the show. And wait till you see how those two characters, Sam and Miriam, end up near the end of the book. (laughs) That's all I can say, because I don't want to be a spoiler. But Sam's nemesis, Ali Hassan. Now, here's the guy who, um, I can say this with uh, security, that he is an interesting character. He isn't all that you assume he is. His brother, Rustam. Uh, President Assad's spy catcher uh, is Ali. Head of the Republican Guard is Brother Rustam. Uh, They are dark and twisted characters in their own right. Let's talk about those. Let's start with Ali uh, first. Yeah, so uh, Ali Hassan is a, uh, he runs a fictional security organization, which I made up uh, in Syria called the Security Office. Um, Most of the other groups in Syria are real in the book, but uh, I made this one up. Uh, he, as you said, is Assad's primary spy catcher, uh, which is a you know pretty important job inside that that government. He, and again, I don't think this is giving anything away either. Is both a very he's a former police detective, and and so he has a, I think a little bit more. He's brutal. He doesn't enjoy that brutality. Uh, he is actually looking to catch people and prove that they've done something wrong as opposed to just rolling people up and throwing them in prison and torturing them for sport, not his, not his game. Um, but very much like Miriam, his family is also bound up in the government. And so he is ambivalent when we meet him, I think, about the, the government's response. I think he feels trapped in many word. ways and is one of the characters that I honestly uh, I really enjoyed writing the most because his situation felt like something that's hard maybe for us to really understand in the, in the U S like that you'd have someone who's in a position where they're sort of stuck doing these, you know, horrible, despicable things. And they feel, they feel trapped. They, they, they feel like their family would be killed or imprisoned or, you know, worse if they, uh, left or if they stopped doing their job. And so that felt like, you know, you, you could have a long conversation about the morality of those decisions and all of that, but it felt like he was a very, you know, there was a lot to explore there with his character and his, his inner life. And, and I think that that, you know, that ambivalence sort of um, creates drama throughout a lot of the book. He really was uh, one of the more enjoyable guys to follow and see his, metamorphosis or evolution yeah. his growth yeah and then how about his brother a, a delightful charming chap yeah yeah he's not he's not so great i wanted to explore i guess some some of the tension inside the the, the regime itself through the eyes of these brothers and so on the ali hassan side you've got someone who's ambivalent about what it's doing you know he doesn't directly oppose it but he kind of poses it in private and there's a conversation you know, talking with his wife about how he opposes it Rustam doesn't, right? Rustam is a probably suffers from PTSD. I mean, I wrote him as someone who kind of suffers from that, um, from actually suppressing a, an insurgency that occurred in the 80s when he was a young man. He is a very brutal person. 
he like uh, like Ali and a lot of the people in the government though I think he also believes that he's doing what's necessary to protect their community and protect their family and so while he is certainly a villain in this book I did want him to feel like there was human like human emotion there there was something you know you could understand where he was coming from even if you look at it and say it's despicable and so I wanted to I wanted to bring that kind of brutal mindset about the war and the way it should be fought out in one of the characters and he was the way to express that and brutal honesty too there near the end we'll just leave it at that but right and the way that you brought them full circle without giving anything away was was deft and i i really enjoyed that now there's a great quote um and i'm trying to think of where i found that it it may be on you tell me as i get through this um Damascus Station offers a textured portrayal of espionage, love, loyalty, and betrayal in one of the most difficult CIA assignments on the planet. Now, first, who said this? Uh, and um, tell me why it is or was the most difficult. I think that was uh, some jacket copy that we came up with with uh, my publisher. So I think it's a little, you know, maybe a little bit hyperbolic. Okay. But I would say during the... Hey, it's a fictional world, babe. Right, it's a fictional world. I mean, you know, Syria Syria is a denied area or was a denied area operating environment. So, you know, similar to um, Russia, similar to China, uh, similar to Iran, not at the same level, but you had a you know fairly capable host go- government and with multiple security services, you know, a highly effective repressive apparatus uh, and it wasn't a U.S., you know, not a U.S. ally. And so it was very hard. Um, you know, CIA operations in countries, you can imagine, were very difficult in the same way that they would be in Russia or they'd be in China or they'd be in Iran. And so a lot of the a lot of the scenes in the book where we're, we're dealing with surveillance and Sam moving around Damascus and trying to figure out if he's being watched kind of came out of um, trying to think through what would what would it really not only just what happened, but what would it really feel like to be a CIA officer in a place that doesn't want you there and, and is pretty committed to, you know, rooting out the people that you're trying to meet with? Funny you should say that because that's the exact word I would have said. And one of the things that I so enjoyed about this book, I don't know that I always feel everything quite like I felt it in this book because I would put myself in his place. So you're zigzagging. I, I mean, I love all the to use 007 because uh, it's just released. I love all the tricks of the trade and the 007 yeah. and the, you know. But the fact that I, f- I literally felt Sam's kind of, oh shit, I'm trying to move in and amongst this world that I they don't want me here. Part of me doesn't want to be here. Now I am and he's he gets in deeper and deeper all along, yet trying to get out. And I thought, what would it be like to be in a situation like that? that you could not, unless you went into deep hiding and how long will that last? Yeah. I think um, there is a, there aren't too many books that I know of at least that go kind of in depth on some of the real pieces of what it would feel like to be a case officer, a CIA case officer. And one of the elements that I thought had a lot of drama and intrigue to it was this idea of a surveillance detection route, which is, yeah, I'm going from point A to wherever the, you know, asset meeting is going to be. 
which is, you know, when you're, when you're meeting an asset face to face, like that is, that is a key component of the trade craft is how do I get there without being followed? And it's not, how do I lose surveillance, which I think is a common misconception because that's, that's the surefire way to get you, you know, beat up on the streets of Moscow or thrown out of the country or whatever. Cause it's obvious then that you've spotted them, that you're operational in the moment and they know, but it's, it's how do I detect it without them knowing that I've detected it. And it's a very elaborate uh, ritual. Yeah. It takes an exceptional amount of training. It's also, uh, I think as, as one case officer I spoke with, as I was writing some of the scenes said, you know, he's like, it's a total uh, mind fuck pardon the yeah. French, you know, sure, to, sure. to be out there and you're kind of, you're trusting the trade craft and, and, and the planning that you've done. And at the same time, it's starting to get in your head. Like, am I, am I seeing things, seeing ghosts is, is what we would call it. And, and it's kind of like a case officer equivalent of the yips in baseball, you know, oh, where oh, yeah. um, you're, you're, you're starting to imagine things that, that aren't there. And, and some of the basics of the craft break down as a result. So it's a very, uh, this is kind of wonderful combination of the physical tradecraft and the mental dance that I thought was really fun to explore. And I think, quite frankly, one of the most intriguing aspects of the whole book, when I got to those moments, that's when the pages raced. Uh, not to mention the fact that you got great chase scenes. I do want a quick question because I had a note here. I did not know exactly what it means. What is a what is a warm pitch? A warm a warm pitch would be if we have some kind of background or otherwise, um, you know, connection to the target. Okay. So as opposed to a cold pitch, which might literally be, I know I've got your photo, David Temple, and I know or I think that you're going to be around here at this point in time, and I might literally come up to you on the street and pitch you because I, I know that I'm not going to, this is the only opportunity I'm going to have to get in front of you. Um, as you can imagine, the hit rate on cold pitches, uh, maybe it's a little higher than you think, but it's not, not super great <laughs> because right, right. You set up. but a warm pitch is you kind of know some background on this person. You might understand, you know, a lot about their job. You might even have someone who can kind of make the intro. Uh, okay. that's the distinction between the two. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Makes total sense. I, I probably knew that intrinsically, but uh, I want to make sure I clarified it here. I want to go back to Krav Maga a second, because yeah. one of my favorite things was early in the book when uh, Sam and Miriam are, are sparring in the ring. Those First of all, those fight scenes are great. I love that. <laughs> How you used uh, that expertise of hers throughout the book, again, yeah. not someone that you want to mess with. I'm wondering, and I have to ask this, do you know that sport? I know we mentioned earlier, but I, I didn't ask you then. No, so I... um. I did Taekwondo for a while, uh, you know, growing up and, and in college and all that. Um, but never, but never Krav Maga. And I, <laughs> when I, when I started tinkering around with the idea for Miriam, I remember speaking with one of my, uh, one of my agency friends who spent a lot of time in, in Syria and the Middle East. And, and he was like, he's like a Syrian learning Krav Maga. He's like, are you insane? You know, like is, you know, it's an Israeli martial art and the Syrians, you know, tend to not view the Israelis in a favorable light. And I was like, you know, I think that she's like for her character, I think this might be the kind of middle finger type thing that she would enjoy doing. And, and he's like, okay, whatever. And, but I always loved it for her because it just seemed, um, 
you know, she's got this kind of polished exterior to her and, and she's, she's an, she's an attractive woman. She's, she's very capable and smart and, and there's a lot of different layers to her personality and she drives the narrative forward at times. But I also wanted her to be, um, you know, I wanted her to have this kind of vicious thing underneath the surface that can come up. And I, I thought that was a, a perfect, you know, martial art for her to express that through. And it served her so well throughout the book, especially near. Right. Well, there's also some plot convenience there too, right? It's, yeah, there's some times where she can bring that out and really, yeah. really use it full effect. I did have to <laughs> chuckle a couple of times. Oh, good thing she knows that particular sport. <laughs> right. Funny how that happens sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's fiction, baby. So back, right. to the, back to the cloak and dagger stuff and the tricks of the yeah. trade. Very James Bond, as I said, um, you know, the guys are going to love this for all the obvious reasons we've just spent the last 49 minutes talking about. But gals are going to love it too. Oh my gosh, I don't mean that in any particular sexist kind of way, but I mean, because I'm drawn to romance as much as the next guy. But the women are going to love the fact that there is this romance um, sprinkled throughout. Guys will too. Okay, there, I'm safe. Um, because you, you, and this is one thing I love. Uh, you can tell I don't write romance. And I'm butchering that, but you provide just enough to to tantalize, but not to oversell. And here's one of my favorite lines. I'm going to read it to you. It's super simple. It's it's so easy, but it's a layup, but it's so good. I would need to bring in my sexy music here. I'll do that. In- oh gosh! <laughs> they unbuttoned and unsnapped and slid off and pulled down until they reached the bed's edge and fell in. I love that line. There you go. It's a good line. That's. I think your reading of it is also showing why. When I listened to the audiobook for the first time, I had to. I, I I struggled not because the narrator wasn't doing a good job, but there's something about hearing lines like that that you wrote played back out loud. That at least to me as a writer was deeply uncom- <laughs> uncomfortable. So, um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> To borrow a phrase, and here's a question for you, and, and it uh, it grabbed me. I had I scribbled many copious notes about it because it it intrigued me. To borrow a phrase, you, you've heard the phrase, there's honor among thieves, right? Here's what I mean by that. Nearing the end, the Russians are losing patience trying to see what Sam is up to. That's, that's not a giveaway. They tail him several times with several teams to have some, uh, Sam go black, which I love that. That's uh, un, untailable. But they say something about wanting to pick him up and beat the crap out of him. But here's the thing. Here's a quote. He didn't want the investigation deteriorating into such thuggery, but he was running out of options. So here's my question. Great idea, especially in the CIA. Is there honor among thieves? Do all the players play by some set of unspoken or spoken rules that even the bad guys respect, for lack of a better term? Depends on which bad guy you're talking about. I think... For a long time in the Cold War, there were a set of sort of unspoken rules around how you could treat or not treat the other side's intelligence officers, you know, particularly inside the United States and in, in Russia. So, for example, for a very long time, you know, it, it was there were violations, of course, but it was generally a rule that you wouldn't uh, you would not physically harm the other side's intelligence officer. Now, not true for the spy, right? The person who's stealing secrets. Sure. But for the intelligence officer on either side, 
there would have been no physical harm dealt to them if you caught them in the middle of an operational act. Yeah, that's not true with the Iranians. <laughs> that's not true, uh, increasingly not true with the Russians. I mean, you know, there's a whole separate, uh, you know, conversation to be had about their use of directed energy weapons against our officers. Um, you know, I think a lot of those rules, to the extent they ever existed, are, you know, not really in operation anymore. But I was trying to bring out with the Ali character some sense of, you know, there are rules to these games and he's going to try to, and I you know, like, like I said earlier, Ali's also a police investigator by training. And so he's trying to catch him, right? He doesn't want to just bring him in and extract the information in, in an interrogation chamber or torture chamber. He wants to catch him in the act so he can videotape it and, and, and kind of do this quote unquote, the right way. And that's then a, I think Ali views, he, he kind of takes it as a point of pride, his capability to uh, to do that. And I think where this came from, and I want to see if I remember this correctly. This goes back a while. It's going to show my age. I want to say maybe it's the bridge over the River Kwai or one mm. of those dated war movies where they're in captivity and they're they're captured and there's this uh unspoken rule of like well you can't treat an officer this way mm, yeah i might be butchering that and that's what made me think of this okay yeah for some reason you're making me think of the great escape too. the great it's, escape it's that's it between. thank it's you it's possible it's in quiet too but that's the one i'm there's sort of different rules for the officers and hundred percent, hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's absolutely true. No, I, and I, but I think that, uh, I mean, you even see that with one of the, uh, I'm trying to think about to say this without giving anything away, but there's, there's a CIA officer who's captured in the book and uh, there's a part of the logic behind her being captured to begin with was that she won't be mistreated right. because she has, you know, she's there, she's, you know, got the diplomatic cover and yes. there are certain rules by which you treat, you know, such such detainees, right? And right, um, we see that the Syrians may not exactly agree with that. We're being very careful, folks, to uh, not spoil this for you. So I guess the very best thing for you to do is to go pick yourself up a copy of this Damascus Station and get busy because you're going to rip through it. Uh, as you approach the riveting climax, uh, Beirut Station, this was very powerful for me. Chief uh, William Buckley was mentioned, and I felt mm. my heart sink because I had uh, Fred Burton on the show not that well, long ago. <laughs> and he shared his front seat to the whole ordeal in his book, Beirut Rules. Um, side question, did you read that book? Do you know Fred? Because he's awesome on so many levels. I haven't, I haven't read that book. It's on my you know, very high TBR uh, list. And I know, I know of Fred. I think he's great, but I haven't read that book, unfortunately. You, I should, I should read it though, is what you're saying. Uh, you should. Uh, when I read okay. this, I was thinking of you and I said, David, I gotta, I gotta mention this to you. It's a, it's a riveting book. It's a, it's a, it's a true, uh, it's a great tale of a true hero. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my goodness. It's, it'll, it'll break your heart. Fred Burton, by the way, if you ever, he's so approachable and so warm and so kind and so available with this time, he would probably love to share, carve out 15, 20 minutes with you at least. But, um, as I, I, I'm going to give this book five stars and I don't really do, re- I haven't done reviews yet. I'm going to start doing reviews on the show. It just mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. Um, I knew David, when I saw this, when I started reading the blurbs, well, right here on the front, and General David Petraeus, boy, you you scored with some of these blurbs. 
the best spy novel I've ever read. Now, I have a profound respect for General Petraeus. So when I read that, I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's flip this thing. Let's flip this bitch over and see what else we got. So you got that. You got David Ignatius, uh, Washington Post. He's talking about, you know, how you capture the time and the places and the people. You got Leon Panetta, former director. He had some kind of a gig at a little company called CIA. Mid-level position at the agency. (laughs) Holy moly. I mean... And then, of course, I think inside, if I remember correctly, Jack Carr. Yeah, my buddy Jack Carr. Most realistic and authentic depiction of modern-day tradecraft and non-permissive and hostile environments that you will find in print. He's shocked the CIA's publication review board to allow David McCloskey's Damascus Station to see the light of day. Read it now before it's banned. Holy... Yeah, those were... Uh, that's uh, It was a bit overwhelming to see those, see those in print very very fortunate to have such wonderful supporters of the book well david i'm uh we're as we get uh close to time to wrap i, I want to be very respectful of your time this has been awesome i am going to throw you through a couple of rapid fire questions so just yes get please ready. you know this um okay if you were back in the shit as they say what <laughs> would you enjoy the most in being in such said condition and what would you do differently today with your knowledge that you now have that you didn't have then? Ooh, that's a good one. You know, I think, uh, I honestly think I would, I'm thinking back to those days at the agency, I would have tried to have a bit more perspective about uh, how precious that time was because I really look back on it so fondly. Um, and I think at the time it felt totally insane. And, and especially in the middle of the Syrian war, like it was hard to actually kind of pinch yourself and realize what you were living through. And I think now on the other side of it, you know, you kind of wish, I wish that I'd had a way to appreciate that more, um, you know, in, in real time. This is another version of that. If you could go back and get you, talk to your younger self, what would you tell them? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's so good because, um, God, that's so true. I, I, I had that glimpse of an idea recently, uh, one of my earlier careers in radio, and I, I was right in the thick of it at the top of the world, a New York City morning show, and I thought it was all moving so quickly mm-hmm. that I, if I went back and told my younger self, I'd say, man, may, take a moment every once in a while to slow down, look around, take a deep breath, and suck it in because yeah. it goes so quick. Yeah. Great answer. All right. Here's an easy one. You're stuck on a deserted Island, but <laughs> thankfully through the miracle of fiction, you thought ahead and had a backpack on your back, managed to stow away a favorite book and some favorite music. What would they be as you're stuck on that deserted Island sipping fruity drinks with Gilligan and ginger and Marianne? Is it, is it one book? It's one book. I'm going to make it it's hard on you. It's one book and it's one CD. You have a, an old Sony Walkman and that one CD is just going to spin for who knows how long. Okay. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to bring... I'm going to bring Le Carre's uh, Little Drummer Girl, uh, which I think not only uh, is a one... I mean, it's just... It's, it's a phenomenal exploration of the human condition, I think, honestly. Uh, and, and I love it because most of it, Le Carre didn't do the Middle East all that much. And in this case, he kind of waded into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and 
I just think it's a remarkable, remarkable book. I think it's his best. That's that's just me personally. No wonder um, you have share such a similarity to timber and time and feel and atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I mean I love I, I love all of his all of his stuff. I mean I've read it all, but um, that one in particular I think is just. And then I think in terms of CD man, it's brutal to try to whittle it down you can um, pick a genre if you want to be a change. i'm gonna bring no no i think i i know and, and maybe it's just this is probably some recency bias in here but i really loved it jack antonoff's group bleachers they've got a i'm trying to they've got a number of different albums i need to actually look up which one i would which one i would bring um but i would probably try to bring all of their stuff if i could if it was a cd that had a lot of storage space on it sure um because I I just I for whatever reason it's um it's sort of wonderful all purpose music to crank up in the car to work to and and I really think it kind of has some kind of tug on the heart too so I'd bring I'd bring okay. that. Did you say the album is called Bleachers? Bleachers is the band. Um, okay, got it. I feel like we're in this unfortunate world of you know with everything being on uh, on Spotify you're like you kind of tink like go through without actually knowing some of the album names right. The debut is just Bleachers. That's what I'd bring. Okay, got it. Here's an easy one for you. Now, you and your wife are going to have dinner with my wife, Tammy, and I. We'll have a wonderful time. Great food, great wine. I'm a great cook. We're going to bring you here to San Diego. We want you to bring two people. I want you to bring two people to just round out our party. It's going to be fun. They happen to be two people you enjoy to have a nice dinner over. Like I said, great beverages, great food. We have an ocean view. It's just a spectacular night. It could be a man and a woman. It could be two men. It could be two women. I'm giving you plenty of time to think about it. It could be dead or alive, up or down, in or out. doesn't matter. Who would they be? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> It's going to be a fun day. All right. I'm going to give you a crazy answer. I'm going to go. I'm, I'm thinking about what would be what would make the evening most memorable. So let's go with uh, Peter the Great and let's go with Marcella Hazan, who has written what I think is the best Italian, you know, sort of for the for the American market, the best Italian cookbook, Italian food cookbook that I've I've ever worked through. I'm going to go with those two. OK, um, you know, anytime you've got a, uh, you know, he's Peter the Great was like six foot eight and extremely, you know, probably psychotic in many ways. Uh, and I'd love to talk with him and I love to talk Italian cooking too. So, okay. Two things don't surprise <laughs> me at all. The fact that you'd bring probably, you know, this guy that would completely dominate the entire conversation in some form or fashion. And then that's true. I hadn't thought about that. It could actually be a very unpleasant evening because we might, no one else might be able to speak. But it'd be memorable. Well, and like I said, it's, you know, your wife, I don't know your wife, but your wife and my wife would probably have a blast. You and I know we would. And then if we could get in a word, uh, you know, with the great guy, is that his last name? Hey, Mr. The Great, you know. Peter the Great. Mr. Yeah. The Great. Right. And, <laughs> and the second one, <coughs> that's hilarious. I knew when you wrote that scene, uh, Sam and Miriam are in the um, safe house and he's preparing only one of two meals that he knows how to cook. I knew that when, the way you broke down that scene, I said, okay, this McCloskey guy, he's got a thing for Italian food, see? That's true. Just, That's true. I was working through a number of Italian cookbooks at the time, and I was like, I've got to figure out some way to get this in the book. There you go. There you go. Yeah. All right. If you were last question, and it's just really for my listener, this book, you know, this show is about thrillers. It's, it's yeah. thriller books, it's thriller TV, it's thriller movies. It's for readers and writers. I'm a reader and a writer. 
What's a great piece of advice? Because I noticed as we talked during the break, you uh, are repped by ICM, which is probably one of the biggest agents in the entire universe. So what kind of advice would you give the up-and-comers, whether they're self-publishers like me or, or like me who's looking for that first agent with the next book? What's a great piece of encouragement you would give us about that? And what I, what I always tell people if they're working on something is force yourself like get through the first draft as fast as you can. And, and the reason I tell people that is because I, I know, I know a lot of people who are kind of, they'll spend, you know, those, they'll write the first 10 chapters. They'll kind of like go back and edit and edit. And, and then they'll start to get into the mode of how do I get, how do I get an agent? How do I like move this thing forward kind of commercially? And what I always tell people is just, you got to get through the writing and you got to get that first draft done quickly in order to get to a point, like we talked about earlier, where you could even begin to unpack what the book is. I think a lot of people think they can short circuit that process a bit and get the agent and then everything, you know, editor, whatever, everything's going to be fine. Um, I think you got to finish that first draft fast and you got to, you got to rework it many, many times before you kind of get to that point. And so I always encourage people to like, just, just do it fast and kind of do it dirty in some ways so that you get it down on paper and you have something to react to. That's great. Go to the market, get your eggs, your flour, your tomatoes, your yeah. bottle of wine, come home, pull, put it out on the counter. And then that's your first draft. Now knead it, put it together, mash the tomatoes, etc. Let it cook. Yeah. That's your second draft. Then let it simmer. Let that sauce simmer. So it's getting cooking all good. And, um, that's a, that's a great analogy and a great piece of advice. I, I am curious, I mean, to land someone, to land an agent of that stature on your first book is, how did you do that? Oh, the fact well, that it's a great book, there you go. I, I do think I was lucky. Um, I think there's got to be some luck in there. Um, you know, I, I will say like another thing is just kind of knowing what agents you want to go to and what kind of work they do and whether what you do matches with what they're interested in and their client list. So there's definitely some kind of like legwork to be done there that not all writers do. Um, but I, I think I, I was very fortunate and going back to the comment, I'm getting the first draft done and having those passes done. I mean, uh, the chances of, you know, getting an agent and ultimately getting a book published, obviously go way up the, the more you invest in the story and, you know, honing it so that it's the best it could possibly be. Um, and so I like to think all, all those things came, came together for me. And I'm very, very blessed, uh, <laughs> very blessed by what happened. Folks, the book is called Damascus Station, David McCloskey. It is a must read. Um, I could go on and on about it, but uh, I won't. I'll just simply say it's one of the best books I've read this year. And we are yeah. delighted to have had you. Thank you so much for carving time out of your schedule. I mean, I know it just dropped. Was it last Friday, Friday, a week ago? last Tuesday. Tuesday. So, yeah. 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 A week ago um, or so. Yeah. Um, just dropped. So it kind of, you know, figuring out what, what it's, I guess, it, I guess the best way I could think about that is it feels like you're, you're sort of sending a kid off to college where you're, you're proud, you're kind of terrified, you know, all the stupid stuff they did when they were little, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they're out there in the world now, but it feels, it's exciting to kind of see it out in the wild and, and have people, reading it and reacting to it and sure. hear, hear kind of how it's being received. That's a pretty surreal feeling. Well, I would be remiss if I did not ask what is next because, uh, you know, this book leaves you with a beautiful <laughs> situation to explore more. I'm going to leave it that way. Yeah. But, yeah. What is next for David McCloskey? Is it 
Is it another standalone? Is it a part of a series? I mean, have you thought that far ahead? Are you talking about it yet? I'm about three quarters of the way through the first draft on a second book. It is a standalone uh, okay. with a few, be careful in how I say this, a few characters that carry over that survive Damascus Station. And it is a US-Russia focused book. So it's not Syria, it's not the Middle East. And it's really exploring the question of, you know, what would it look like if the CIA got really serious about sticking it to Vladimir Putin? And that's the <laughs> that's the the kind of what if question at the heart of heart of the next book. So I call it the same universe, but right, same agency CIA universe, but um, set in the present day and uh, you know with a with a different different set of characters for the most part. Okay, fair enough. I will say that I'm going to miss those two lead characters. <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I I hope that we will uh, that I'll be able to pick up the Damascus Station story at some point and 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 continue it forward. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I wanted to do something a little bit different for the second one, and uh, and I'm having fun with that. It's it's been writing scenes with Putin is is almost as fun as writing scenes with Assad. So he, yeah, he makes an appearance in the next one. <laughs> nice. Thank you for the gift of your time, David. No, David, I appreciate it. This was a ton of fun, a uh, ton of fun. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks again, David, for taking time from a busy schedule and spending it with us. Okay, I've booked yet another stellar guest for next week's Thriller Zone, which I'll share in just a second. First, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening to us from across the miles. Please feel free to contact us at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Also, would you do me a favor? When you're on the YouTube channel, David Temple Author, please hit the button to subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast channel, take just a second to give us a five-star rating to let us know you're enjoying the podcast. Now, about next week's guest, P.J. Vernon has a book called Bathhouse that's a scintillating thriller that packs an emotional punch, or as S.A. Cosby, author of Blacktop Wasteland, says, reading Bathhouse is like eavesdropping on the disintegration of a beautiful lie. You think you know how it's going to end, but you have no idea. I hope you'll make plans to join me when we get our twists and thrills on with the super engaging P.J. Vernon on next week's steamy episode of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.